Thinking in Dark Times, a podcast series by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. In this episode, I speak to Askold Melnichuk, a famous American writer with Ukrainian origin, author of books What is Told, Ambassador of the Dead, House of Widows, The Man Who Would Not Bow, and others. His novels have earned honors at a New York Times Notable and LA Times Best Books of the Year and an editor's choice by the American Library Association's book list. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. In this episode, I speak to Melnichuk about Ukrainian literature today, about culture facing death and suffering, and the Ukrainian diaspora in North America. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the oldest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Askold Benlichuk, welcome to this podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Volodymyr. Uh, I'm I'm a, actually so so glad that we we might talk right now. And uh, the first question that I would I would ask you is that you are an American writer with Ukrainian origin, and I admire your novel, which I novels which I read. It is uh, what is told and uh, Ambassador of the Dead. And uh, in these both books, the Ukrainian origins are, are very much present in your books. Uh, how is it like to be an American writer with Ukrainian origins back then when you were writing these novels and now? Hmm, yeah. Um, uh, thanks, Voldemir. Thank you for the good question and the kind words. It's a, it's a radically different world, isn't it, now than it was um, when I published uh, What is Told in 1994, 30 years ago. Uh, back then, back in the 90s and throughout the 80s while I was writing the novel, uh, Ukraine was you know, utterly terra incognita. It was uh, a country whose existence was regularly denied by the most remarkable people or seen as a kind of uh, problem, uh, problematic entity that uh, one would rather not have brought up in certain circles. Um, it was a uh, You know, it was considered not only a subset of the Soviet Union, but just very much a subset of Russia. And so whenever I would uh, bring up the even the word, I'd need to do a lot of explaining. Now, you know, because my world is not the world of Slavic studies and you know, in academia, I mean, um, my, my friends were American writers, my colleagues were uh, American and English literature students. Uh, not not Slavicists, and so they really had no background. And to them, it was a sort of uh, um, a dark shadow from the Cold War era, uh, especially since m- most of my world was pretty much in the, on the left side of the political spectrum. And there in particular, uh, Ukraine was seen uh, very broadly as um, the uh, place that had experienced all kinds of horrors in World War II, and Ukrainians were, um, in fact, very uh, broadly regarded as somehow uh, Nazi collaborators. Um, so it was, a, it was a kind of a tough atmosphere in which to be bringing up 
the, the whole subject of, of the country. It was sort of astonishing because, you know, people would sometimes, I, I was in a translation program at graduate school at one point, and uh, I was translating some poems by Mykola Rudenko and Ivan Drach and a few other uh, Ukrainian poets. And, and as I was reading both the originals and the translations to my uh, fellow graduate students, uh, one of them uh, said, well, that's very much like Russian, really, it is Russian, you know, and so I'd have to always kind of be explaining and at times uh, defending it. Uh, And it was it was so peculiar to me, because my parents had no doubts, no hesitations, and were very clear about the distinctions between Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, Poland, and all that. Um, So so it was a time where uh, it took some extra work to lay a foundation for what was the real story, which is a story of people uh, trying to uh, survive in extreme circumstances of the sort that Ukraine is experiencing now. So in in your book, this is, of course, the the topic of immigration is very important. So people who are actually displaced, people what uh, maybe uh, Petrov Domantovich called Bezgruntiane, right? And this mm-hmm. is a topic Was very important for for that literature, for that Ukrainian literature of the um, after the Second World War and all this generation of Moore right. and, and, and Shevilov and, and Bahriana and Petrov Domantovich who actually returned to Soviet Union and um, some other people. And this feeling of Bezgruntiane, was it, was it kind of a a feeling of freedom for you, a liberty <laughs> that you're, that you're, and yeah, that you're, uh, kind of have these roots, but they are half forgotten, or on the other way around, and you were trying to search these roots and to rediscover them. Uh, yeah, I, n- not. It was not something that um, I was particularly grateful for. Uh, because there was such a radical division between the a world that was acknowledged and recognized within the house or within the Ukrainian um, uh, emigrate community and the world that was recognized in the kind of public spaces through which I moved. So um, there was this sense of um, frustration and puzzlement about why it was so very difficult to clarify uh, who one was in these sort of uh, broad terms. I mean, one knew who one was in, in very kind of basic and local terms, but in trying to understand oneself in a larger kind of a social picture, it took uh, took more explaining than necessary. So, um, in fact, you know, you, you asked originally about how things had changed. And for me, um, the fall of the wall and the... Uh, assertion of Ukrainian independence in 1991 were hugely significant because in a way I thought now at last I could stop um, trying to explain and stop in fact even looking backward to try to understand because Ukraine itself would tell its own story and be able to tell its own story. And I would say that uh, one of the kind of radical differences between then and now is that at last, and at least, Ukraine is able to be telling its story from within, rather than having um, someone like myself, who, after all, was born in New Jersey, and um, um, as you mentioned, an American writer, uh, having to try to uh, clarify things from without. You know, it, it's um, 
the the experiences of of the generations of, of people of my generation. I'm, I'm 68. Uh, those of us who were raised here in uh, uh, Ukrainian in the families of kind of Ukrainian emigres or refugees had such radically different life experiences from those writers of my generation who grew up in Ukraine. And uh, it's something that I discovered um, quite vividly on my first trip there in 1990. Do you have the impression that uh, the immigration actually, uh, the Ukrainian immigration and diaspora have helped a lot to shape the contemporary Ukraine as we know it? Because, uh, I mean, for, for us today, intellectually, of course, I mean, it's it's very important to to listen, to read the writers, uh, the poets, which which created in Ukraine under the Soviet rule, but they were exterminated afterwards, or they were silenced, and many of them were, I mean, sometimes too young to really accomplish themselves. When you when you think about Pid Mohilny, who wrote his novel, first novel, mm-hmm. uh, Mista, I think it was 26 mm-hmm. or 27. If you mm-hmm. think about how young was Khvilevi when he shot himself, if you think mm-hmm. about how even people who survived, like uh, like uh, Yanovsky or Tychina, were actually silenced and, and broken from inside. Mm-hmm. And then you realize that actually... Uh, Abroad, people like Shivilov, people like Ivan Lysak Rudnitsky, people like, uh, like, uh, I but don't George know. Lutsky. Yes, yes, exactly. People like Shporluk, uh, if, sure. if, if, if you talk about historian, people like Omelian Pritsak, lots of others, they really had this opportunity to, to create and to create fantastic things because they had time, they had conditions. Do you have this impression? How this impression that diaspora actually helped Ukraine to survive during the time when Ukraine was maybe you know almost dead? You know, I certainly have that sense. Um, I, of course, defer to um, how you perceive it from inside. But you know, I I was friends with some of the. Um, older generation writers from the New York group, Bohdan Rupchak and Bohdan Boychuk, um, who's acquainted with Yuri Tarnowski and a couple of others. But um, you know, I was very aware of the work that they were doing in uh, promoting Ukrainian uh, writers from both uh, Ukraine and uh, in the diaspora here. I, re- um, I know uh, how much scholarship Shebelov and Lutsky did in trying to make sure that a record of uh, Ukrainian writers would be preserved. I mean, wasn't it Lutsky who was doing uh, an anthology of Rostril Nevidrojnya? And and, uh, there were others uh, like this who were kind of uh, making sure that we here uh, learn about the writers who had been the victims of the executed or aborted Renaissance. Uh, so that, I mean, I certainly uh, read the work of, um, of both Bajan and Zerov, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the neoclassica, who um, had no sort of um, presence in the kind of uh, Anglophone literary sphere, but had an intense and profound sp- present among those in the diaspora who were 
concerned and involved with literature. So yeah, my sense was that they, they, they were uh, profoundly important in uh, maintaining a link with the past and the tradition when a generation growing up in the Soviet Union was not allowed or did not have access to those texts. My godfather was a painter, Slav um, Hutsayuk, and he was friends with Ivan Drach and uh, hung out with him when Drach came here, when uh, um, Stanley Kunitz and other American uh, poets, I think uh, Mark Rudman among them, uh, were translating uh, some of uh, Drach's poems. So yeah, I do think that they pro- played a profound role in maintaining uh, cultural ties and in keeping uh, parts of Ukrainian literary history uh, alive and present in a way uh, so that in the 90s, it was possible to uh, begin a dialogue with Ukrainian writers in Ukraine and in some cases reveal to them some of the literature that they might not have had access to themselves. But on the other side, my guess is, maybe I'm wrong, but correct Hmm. me if I'm wrong, is that when you're living in in, in a diaspora and uh, you're trying to preserve Ukraine as it was, there is this risk that you will kind of conservate it and keep it a thing of the past or create Mm. some fantasy reality, imaginary world. Uh, Is that something that you you, you felt this risk as well? Well, it's always the case, right? Um, You, uh, the generation that left uh, during and after the war, had their memories locked in by the worlds that they had inhabited and left behind. And those were in some ways frozen in time and they were um, preserved, if you will, in amber uh, in the way that we all uh, tend to mythologize a a past and uh, cherish moments that may be as uh, much uh, imagined as actually perceived and experienced. So that was, you know, that would have that was natural, and that was why when I arrived in a cave in 1990 for the literary conference of Tehomin, um, I came pretty much open and eager to hear what the experience and what the reality was like. And as I said, I'll I'll never forget. I've told the story before. I'll never forget um, uh, sitting in an auditorium at uh, Shevchenko University and uh, listening to a group of. Ukrainian writers uh, speak to us, uh, those of us who arrived for this conference from uh, the diaspora. And Oksana Zabushka, I'll never forget, got up and began to scold us for imagining that we knew something about the reality that she and her generation had kind of been through. Um, So so sure, I do think that there's inevitably a tendency to romanticize and to be, um, uh, say, uh, not necessarily stuck, but but to uh, be living with attitudes that reflected a reality uh, of the time that you were there, uh, which had, of course, continued to change and morph. Yeah, that's my sense. But um, at the same but, time, at the same time, when we were discussing uh, your novel, what is told with Oksana Zabushka, uh, uh, if, uh, I think it was before, of course, the, before the full-scale invasion, maybe two years ago, in her uh, initiative when we just get together and discuss books, she was telling us how important the diaspora is and was. And and, and she was kind of transferring this idea that how much 
the diaspora was was helping Ukraine indeed to to keep that to keep that intellectual tradition and to develop it and to strengthen it. And it's very important that uh, we are now trying to reappropriate this uh, right in from intellectually and aesthetically and um, and in many other aspects. When you look at Ukrainian literature, Ukrainian uh, history of Ukrainian literature, uh, do you have your your own personal canon, or can can we can we can you uh, name those writers which you think are really important and can be really important to the outer world today? Because of course we are in Ukraine, we have our own canon, and uh, it's something that we learn at school. It's it's all about you know Taras Shevchenko and then. And Lesya Ukrainka and Franco and maybe Markovovchok and then Khvilovy and then um, maybe now we're rediscovering the Executive Renaissance, Pidmohilny and, and 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 others. But maybe you have your own canon. Maybe you can say that look, for me personally, this guy is not that interesting, and that guy is or that woman that writer female writer is especially interesting i why i'm asking because i remember your article about lisova pisnia the forest song where you named lesio krinka's famous drama environmentalist poem i think you named it and i and i told myself yeah this is the right way to kind of rediscover it mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean that. Well, that, that in particular um, seemed to lend itself to an eco-poetic reading, in part because um, she so vividly and persuasively uh, conveyed the intimate connection between uh, the characters in that play and uh, the uh, natural landscape, uh, and and it's precisely the severing of that uh, connection that has is part of the kind of tragedy of a universal tragedy that we are witnessing with um, our destruction and undermining of a kind of healthy climate. You know, I mean, I confess that I was uh, weaned on um, the traditional classics uh, from uh, Shevchenko and Franco and Ukrainka and Kobelanska, whose home I visited when I visited my father's uh, native city of Chernivchi. And uh, then I was also uh, pretty... Uh, Uh, well read in the work of the Shastadishatnike, uh, Pavlichko and Draj and Yulina uh, Kostenko, as I've mentioned. Um, but my my own kind of personal engagement really began with uh, the work of the writers from the 1980s. And uh, that is where um, I, I would say that my own kind of taste was uh, most sort of formed uh, and the writers who I tend to have in the past recommended to American readers, and in, indeed um, in a very kind of active way when I was uh, working on an anthology called From Three Worlds, you're writing from Ukraine, you know, so the, the writers in uh, that book included everybody from Valery Shevchuk, who I think uh, would whose work I think would uh, both translate very well and be well-received here. And then, of course, Natalka Bilotserkiewicz, whose work has recently found uh, amazing translators in Zbigniew Orlovsky and Ali Kinsella. Uh, there uh, were uh, Oksana Zabushka was obviously part of it, as was Viktor Neborak and Oleg Lesheha, whom I met when he visited here. Uh, Jurko Androkovic uh, really made a strong impression 
with both his stories and, and his poems, and then later his novels. Yuri ben Michuk also uh, had a, a very uh, lively uh, uh, imagination and prose style. Um, you know, so, so, so the, th- those were the writers who uh, really kind of, oh, Vladimir Dibrova, too, whom I then got to know when he uh, arrived in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, I, I remember publishing uh, uh, excerpts from the Beatles songbook in Agni, in Agni, a literary journal I used to edit, uh, and you know, being so startled by the sort of cultural references that he was making there, and even indeed by his engagement with all this. And uh, so, um, so, so as I say, th- those were the writers who made the sort of uh, a profound impression uh, on me back in the '90s. However, you know, one of the uh, outcomes of the or one of the side effects of this horrible war um, has been my rediscovery or my discovery of a new generation of Ukrainian, uh, primarily Ukrainian poets right now, who I've been um, reading uh, with great enthusiasm and joy, uh, you know, and they include uh, um, poets like Helena Kruk and Oksana Lutsishina and uh, well, prose writer Victoria Melina, uh, actually an, a, a remarkable array of talent and uh, astonishingly fine work that has been generated by a new generation, a generation that has had the world open to them, a generation that has traveled, a generation that is um, well aware of international liter- literary trends and is able to work off them and play off them. Um, so, yeah, those would be the writers that I would at this moment uh, want and, and do share with uh, my American friends because I think that they are, their work is urgent, um, accessible, and uh, profoundly moving. I mean, right now, of course, so much of the work that Americans are, American readers are getting has to do directly with the war. Um, there are these very powerful poems by the uh, Kersonskis, especially Yudmila Kersonska's most recent book, which we've just published, um, has, uh, is, is working in an idiom that I feel is as contemporary as anything that's being done in English today. And the work is up. There's so many good translators right now as well um, at work, uh, both in the US and in Ukraine, who are bringing a whole sort of ocean of uh, new work over uh, to uh, American audiences who are at this moment genuinely receptive to it. So sorry, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty broad and scattered canon. Um, you know, the idea of a canon is itself something we could talk about some other time. I'm, I, I hope that every um, genuine reader uh, and I expect that every genuine reader forms their own canon and does not need uh, us to define it for them. Yeah, this is precisely what I'm asking. It's, it's about personal canon, which is kind of a, in in if we if we talk in in musical terms, it's your own improvisation, right? Imagine yeah. you're in a jazz band and uh, you just improvise, and those notes that you add uh, will not be repeated by anybody. I think it's it's the most mm-hmm. interesting when you're reading literature. Of course, there's, there can be no kind of a uh, canon for everybody. And I agree with you that these young uh, or, well, 
new Ukrainian poetry is something something very powerful. Uh, to to those names that you mentioned, I I can add people like uh, people like Katerina Kalitko, Absolutely. who recently got the Shevchenko Prize, or Irina Tsilik, who also got the Shevchenko Prize, but for her f- uh, f- movie making, but she's also a, a very good mm. poet. And uh, and of course Serhi Jadan, who is now in in the, in America, sure. and uh, and making his concerts and and poems, and uh, we at Pen Ukraine are actually now making kind of a musical poetical evenings and uh, inviting poets and playing music and mm. collecting funds to for the army. This is all intertwined uh, today in our in our experience. But, uh, yeah, well, you know, and uh, listen, I, I will never sorry to her, but I have to add that, that I would also add Mariana Sauka, whose uh, selected poems I hope to work on in translating myself next year. And I'd add Yuba Yakimchuk and Irina Shuvalova, whose poetry has struck me as very powerful, and Pablo Korobchuk, um, Iya Kiva. Uh, so, yeah, Katerina Mikhailitsina, you know, uh, the, the list is long. Most Indeed. of the m- most of these people are my friends, and I know them very well. So, despite huh. the well, fact, there's also you know there's another, but there's one more name I need to add, and it, um, and that's um, Alim Aliyev because I've been working with him and Anastasia Leskov in pulling together an anthology of Crimean Tartar literature about which I know nothing, and this is kind of very a very exciting discovery, um, and and uh, I, I've been told that there does not exist a a, a single volume edition of translations from Crimean, uh, contemporary Crimean fiction and poetry. And so that will be exci- an exciting project to work on and learn about. I think this is a great job that uh, that Kremli culture is now doing in Ukraine, Kremli, Crimean Tatar culture. Mm. And um, it's I, I can refer to our listeners to my podcast with uh, uh, with uh, Rory Finian from Cambridge University, right. who, who published a wonderful book about Crimea in English, where he's talking about Crimean Tatar writers and poets and Ukrainian uh, writers and poets, and 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 puts them in a in a very interesting dialogue. So um, yeah, um, but even I, I mean I understand that. Uh, you know, you we have this energy. We have this energy of today, and you know, poetry is one. One might say this is this is very difficult to write poetry during the war. But at the same time, uh, the war makes you rediscover language, and the war makes mm-hmm. you rethink the value of words. And mm-hmm. I think this is this is something that poetry is doing always. I remember an essay. Written by Hoffman Stahl some 100 years ago, when he was writing about the task of the poetry is just to to bring words uh, to to life back from this uh, from this sure. amnesia or maybe from this kind of a dead reality of everyday everyday language. And and while you you're meeting with death during the war, uh, and y- your your key your key wish is to revitalize mm-hmm. and to bring life back and to save life as much as possible maybe this explains why why we all need poetry right now you know the, um, you're reminding me of a story uh, that was told by a great iranian writer in exile shariar mandanapur 
um, he was uh, enlisted, uh, he, he was rather drafted into the Iranian army during the Iran-Iraq war. And uh, he was working on his first novel while he was at the front lines. Um, and he, in a kind of crazy move, um, decided to volunteer to be a minesweeper uh, and the graveyard shift. So he would go out in the dark to do minesweeping. And he realized then that every step he took could be his last. And he said that that influenced his literary style more than any other single experience in his life. Yes, and we can we can also think about writers, Ukrainian writers who are on the front line. Yarina Chernohus is a fantastic, very good Ukrainian poet uh, whom we met a few days ago mm. uh, when we traveled to the East. And uh, I hope we'll soon present her new book. A poetry book um, and um, writers like Artem Chekh, uh, Artem mm -hmm. Chepai, Artem Polipodizhaka, um, uh, three Artems, uh, <laughs> and and many others. And uh, you know, sometimes you see how uh, how people whom you not expected to find um, uh, literary persons or people who are writers become writers actually on the That's front line. Right. Yeah. Sure, you know, and I, I would also add to them two writers who I had a chance to meet and listen to here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when they came through town, uh, visited Harvard, were Volodymyr Rafayenko and Stanislav Aseu, whose torture camp is next on my list, which I've not yet read, though. Yes, um, uh, we, we've talked about this book in one of our previous episodes uh, with Marcy Shore, and I really uh, advise our listeners to read Stanislav Aseu's book. This is Probably it's a very hard book to read, but this yeah. is this is something that tells you that gulags are actually existing, concentration camps are actually existing, and maybe in a even in a more horrible way right now. And of course, Volodymyr Rafaenko, who is a writer from Donetsk and who started writing in Ukrainian, although he was writing in Russian all his life. So very interesting thing, very interesting reality. And uh, I think that the the point of meeting with death and with suffering is something that uh, can also can also transform literature and maybe can mm -hmm. can give. I I don't want to say inspiration. That's a bad word, right. but give some some uh, a new sense of urgency. Yeah, a sense of urgency. Some new sensibility to literature. Right? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, again, it, it is when, when every word might be your last, you want to be sure that you're saying the right word and finding the right word for the singular experience. And I think that any heightened, right, any time we're in any kind of heightened state, a heightened moment, uh, we are perceiving the world around us uh, more sharply, more acutely. Um, you know, we're also, uh, again, in, in a very complicated way, seeing into... Uh, one part of the heart of things. You know, I'll never forget um, sitting in a seminar room at Harvard, listening to Stanislav Aseyev speaking about what he had gone through uh, that uh, provided the material for the torture camp because he described sitting in a, um, I forgot what, fourth or fifth floor of a room in Donetsk, uh, looking out over looking through a window on a sunny day while people were out there shopping and he had and he was hooked up to electrodes and was being electrocuted and we were sitting in a very elegant room at harvard 
listening to him recount this experience while uh, looking out the window at a beautiful, sunny, cold December day and the kind of um, tension between the, these realities um, was so palpable. And I think it's one of the uh, profound Oh, and, and alas, you know, one wishes they weren't necessary kind of gifts that somebody who transcribes experiences under these circumstances or quickly after them brings to the world because they do give us a window into a um, aspect of humanity that for the most part, for most of us, uh, we are lucky to say remains closed. Seeing that, it does also force us to rethink many other things. Yes, I, I, I'm... Many times I feel this kind of uh, incompatibility uh, between uh, beauty and horror. Mm. And uh, I, I felt this uh, incompatibility, for example, in Izum, where these mass graves are mm. located at the outskirts of Izum. Izum is a town in eastern Ukraine, some two hours uh, from Kharkiv. Um, and... Uh, there were lots of lots of victims when Russians were shelling uh, the city and, and uh, bombarding it with aviation bombs. I think it's about 400 aviation bombs destroying some multi-story buildings and people were just buried in the forest. And uh, when you enter this forest, I, I went there already after exhumation of bodies. It's uh, a twofold experience that you feel because on the one hand it's, it's extreme horror, but on the other hand, it's extreme, extreme beauty because the forest is really very beautiful, and uh, and it's a pine forest. And when the sun goes down, and uh, there is a play of uh, light and shadows, and actually we we travel a lot in eastern and southern Ukraine, and these are really extremely beautiful landscapes. You you can see there extremely beautiful landscapes. For example, we've been to Sviatohirsk and. Uh, uh, near the Slavra, and uh, um, this is a fantastic, also also beauty of of the Siversky Donetsk River, but also you add to this the completely destroyed surroundings, completely destroyed buildings, the mm -hmm. destroyed uh, a bridge, and of course the lives of people who were lost here. Uh, so this is uh, this is also something that. That is is in this experience of the war that these mm -hmm. two two worlds coexist the world right. of beauty and the right. world of horror. Let me ask you about uh, about America and about how you 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 feel this war in America because on the one hand, America is a big ally of Ukraine and uh, many things that are happening in Ukraine depend on America, depend on, on whether the support will be sustainable, whether it will be bipartisan, as, as we say all the time. Uh, on the other hand, I understand that for an ordinary American, it's probably a very, very far away war. And it's very difficult to, I guess, my guess is that it's very difficult to explain to an American, why why he or she should think about this war and should care about this war? What would you say? Yeah, um, well, you know, I think you're spot on on all counts. You know, I think that um, trying to explain a war to someone who has not in any way um, 
experience something of it is itself enormously difficult. I mean, I can tell you that uh, it was imp- really <laughs> uh, very hard for me to uh, take in and understand in any meaningful way the stories that my parents passed on about what they had seen, about friends of theirs who had been arrested or killed. And I had an uncle who was shipped off to Siberia in 43. And um, uh, my mother would speak about friends who had disappeared from her uh, high school classes and had friends who had died. And all this felt very distant and very alien to my reality. At the same time, at some at some level, it registered that what we take for granted as normal, you know, a kind of main street with meter maids on their rounds and the well-stocked shelves of supermarkets were really products of specific causes and conditions. You know, neither tranquility nor prosperity defined the natural order of things. And that, that kind of awareness is a sort of infection because one struggles afterwards to ensure that those circumstances which stoke the demonic inside the human which seems to be unleashed in times of war and revolution are kept at bay, uh, you know, and subdued by forces, um, subdued, you know, kept at bay, not by force, but by kind of widespread access to all that cultivates the creative and generous side of our nature. The sort of relativity of human identity is one of the things that I think uh, my understanding of war kind of calls into question and makes me, uh, you know, extremely aware of. You know, I know that that um, in, in some ways this became a little bit more palpable for me when I visited um, Syria and uh, you know, Damascus and Beirut after um, the American invasion of uh, Iraq and could see the kinds of consequences of war as they were played out there. So, yeah, you know, it, it's something I think. And of course, friends of mine who've been in the military are quickest to understand uh, what it means to be to have entered into this other very you know, parallel reality of um, being at the state of war. So yeah, it's very tough to um, explain to people who have had no kind of experience of it either in their families or themselves directly. And, uh, you know, there's so many um, of local dramas that, everyone is experiencing and I mean this um, in the kind of the most micro and macro sense that as I speak uh, speak with friends and we share uh, in news about our lives and I speak about Ukraine they are speaking about uh, family emergencies and uh, health issues and uh, uh, work and, and money issues you know the your know, daily life has its own set of problems that don't go away, uh, no matter what is, even if something extreme is happening somewhere else. Moreover, um, the reality that is conveyed to us in the United States, a kind of island um, in uh, the, the in the stream here that is always feels somewhat distant from the worst, most kind of catastrophic, violent sort of uh, outbreaks happening uh, abroad um, is a uh, we we see the you know, most people see the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, and then um, hear about the uh, prison camps in China, and hear about violence in Mexico, and then the war in Ukraine. These are all sort of um, distant realities that are coming at the American kind of viewer 
uh, from elsewhere? And how do you prioritize and how do you recognize um, what a possible and appropriate response of yours should be if you have no direct connection to it yourself? You know, that's um, something I think about a lot when I speak about Ukraine and the war. Um, I try to calibrate who it is I'm speaking with and what their own kind of family experiences are. When I speak to, um, say, uh, other refugees from um, the Middle East or from Afghanistan or, you know, among students from Haiti or Colombia, uh, they are kind of quicker to understand and respond to what it is that is happening in Ukraine. Um, so, yeah, it's a complicated picture. And I suppose I'd ask you, you know, how aware were you of what was happening in, say, Yemen uh, before the war in Ukraine? You know, and how did you feel it? Yeah, this is a very, very important point. And uh, uh, I think that our war ma made us sensible to other wars. I hope so. Because uh, there are, I think there are two, uh, two, two ways to react to to other suffering when you're suffering. The first mm -hmm. thing is to say, okay, I, I, I'm fed up. I cannot think about somebody else. I have my own tragedy, and that's it. And uh, the other thing is to say, yeah, I know what you're coming through, going through, because uh, I went through this as well. And uh, I think that uh, this also. For example, when when this earthquake happened in in Syria and uh, Turkey, there was lots of lots of empathy posts in the Ukrainian social networks. There was lots of posts of uh, of solidarity, and the Ukrainian government was suggesting its help. Uh, I I hope that it will also change us in in the way that we we be, we will become more open. Although I, I cannot guarantee it will happen, of course, because mm -hmm. uh, because one thing uh, that the war makes with you, uh, I mean, it, it, again, it, it does the the both things. It can do the both things. It can either close yourself on your own experience, mm -hmm. and uh, you might say, okay, all other experience doesn't matter because this is my experience, my suffering, and you don't know what I feel and uh, you will never know and uh, I cannot share it with you because it's unshareable and uh, unspeakable and therefore I will I will close myself on this. This is one response and it is totally understandable and it, it will be. Uh, and uh, not only on the level of the nation but also on the level of the individual, people who are on the front line and, and went through horrible things, uh, how, they, how they can explain with words what they came through to other people who are not on the front line and do know do not know what it is. But on the other hand, uh, with some people, and I think it will be minority, but there will be uh, this this number of people who will actually be even more open to the suffering of others and and who will tell to to themselves, look, we know we know what you're going through. And um, yeah, we will see how whether what kind of society Ukraine will be after this war. Oh, you you sent me you sent me a text about pacifism, and uh, I I'm very very much interested in that, uh, in the way how people who really were pacifist or are pacifist in in their in the, in internally in the in their mind in their souls. 
react to this war. And one of my examples, for example, is my friend uh, Maxim Butkevich, who is a prominent Ukrainian human rights activist and who is a pacifist and uh, who is very much left-leaning person and who was actually fighting with far right in Ukraine, who was always defending the refugees, the migrants from other countries. And when the invasion started, he volunteered for the army because he understood that the human rights he's fighting for can be only defendable when Ukraine maintains its statehood because if Russia comes to this land and occupies it, there will be no human rights. You, you should forget about it. And he was taken prisoner of war. Uh, he was taken in captivity. And uh, a few days ago, last Friday, uh, he was sentenced to 13 years of prison in the Russian-occupied territories in eastern Ukraine. 13 years of prison. And can, we can imagine uh, what kind of prison it is when we read uh, Stanislav Asayev's book. So we really try to, you know, we need to speak about this and other people, of course, like Maxim Butkevich. But this is the case. And uh, like, and the Russians are <laughs> accusing him uh, of... Uh, the war crimes and uh, something absolutely incredible and absurd in the way how they do, because they always do mirroring and they are accused of war crimes, then they will accuse Ukrainian leftist pacifists and human rights defenders of war crimes. This is how they do. But what what would you say to American, European pacifists, maybe left-leaning, who actually maintain the idea that peace should prevail and that, that, that peace is the most, the biggest value and therefore the road to this peace is actually peace talks and acceptance of Russian occupation. Yeah, uh, I've, I've had conversations like this with uh, pacifist friends. And, you know, first again, I have to say that my own um, uh, position, uh, really a, a lifelong position. I've gone to anti-war marches uh, for as long as I can remember. They were always sort of um, anti-war marches um, aimed at trying to persuade my own country to stop it committing violence abroad. So, you know, I began going to them uh, at the very end of the Vietnam War, uh, during the Iraq War, uh, during the Second Iraq War. And uh, it was partly because of the way I processed and understood my parents' own sort of, the, the moral of their story was that war is um, such a kind of great destroyer that only evil comes out of it. However, however, um, I was protesting against a war that was being waged by my nation and imperial power, right? The world's kind of... Uh, still kind of well, great, um, strongest uh, military presence on the planet. And uh, I was not urging the Vietnamese to uh, surrender arms or stop fighting for their country. Uh, I was not urging uh, anyone who was being attacked by my country to uh, stop fighting. Um, and here... It's the recognition that uh, of the consequences of being subsumed by this um, monstrous imperial uh, neighbor uh, or something I'm acutely aware of. And uh, 
feeling uh, the implications uh, of this war, uh, the consequences that would be felt directly and immediately by friends, by people I knew, really personalized it. It stopped being uh, something theoretical and became something very real. I mean, I have family in Lviv. I have friends uh, in uh, cities uh, both in the South and the East. And so suddenly seeing that their lives were threatened, that their lives were at risk of being upended, have been upended, have been destroyed, uh, made it really forced the issue. And I had to confront uh, and imagine what it is that I would do under such circumstances. And it became clear to me that I would not stand idly by while um, some stranger arrived, somebody about whom who knew nothing about me, about whom I knew nothing, suddenly came at my family and friends with weapons aiming to hurt them. But I would not stand by and let them do that. It it became so clear to me. And therefore, I had to revise my pacifist um, position. And it had been quite extreme because in that piece that you mentioned, I had spoken about studying Buddhism for years and and studying with uh, Tibetans who themselves had been the victims of uh, China's aggression and had had to work through their own sort of feelings toward their aggressor. Um, uh, their sort of p- the position of monks uh, who were committed to a kind of absolutist stance in response to violence made sense to me for the monks uh, because of the vows that they take and the ways in which they understand their role in the world. Um, and uh, their role of uh, treating all beings, even those who are trying to hurt them with compassion. That's kind of an extreme and powerful position. It's a very different position for someone who is engaged with family and friends with a very, in a very different sort of, uh, and is in a very different relationship. I feel that we do um, need to recognize our responsibility toward each other and toward maintaining each other's health and well-being. And th- we are, in fact, morally obliged to um, stand up uh, for our uh, sisters and brothers when we see them being uh, done harmed in any way. Um, I think that that is, uh, it became clear to me that that was an imperative. And it, w- what it did was really... Um, uh, it allowed me to uh, revise my own sort of understanding of those who propose uh, pacifist positions uh, out of a strictly theoretical framework. Uh, it seemed to me that between the uh, between the ideal and the reality, uh, it, there's such a kind of vast gap, and it was a bracing and very useful education because it has reoriented so much of my thinking in many different areas of life um, that what is at risk in Ukraine is the what could be lost is the freedom to be oneself, the freedom to speak as oneself, the freedom to um, experience the world uh, in the way that one 
the individual uh, actually does experience it, to be told, to, uh, uh, to be subjugated to someone else's will, to someone else's culture, to someone else's language, is to me to be one of the most destructive things that can happen to a human being. And in some ways, death is perhaps preferable. That's to me a shocking thing to hear myself say. But, um, you know, partly because I live um, in Massachusetts, just south of uh, the state of New Hampshire, whose motto is live free or die. That had always seemed to me a kind of very, a, a bit of terrible jingoistic, you know, jargon. Um, it suddenly became a much more credible statement uh, because I imagined what circumstances I would be willing to live under and what circumstances I would rather um, fight with all my being to resist living under and would indeed could not imagine thriving. You know, I cannot imagine living inside a, a dict dictatorship or a tyranny. I can't even imagine traveling to countries uh, where uh, such rules are in force. So um, conversations with pacifist friends have been, um, for the most part, better than I had expected. And indeed, I have a, a, a dear friend um, who is also one of America's uh, most articulate and outspoken pacifists, uh, James Carroll, himself a former priest who, uh, whose father had uh, been the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency um, and uh, who has written a lot about the Pentagon and the American kind of military machine. And Jim, to his great credit, has um, re really kind of nuanced and revised his own kind of uh, position. Um, so yeah, there are other American pacifists with whom I've spoken who have them been quite open to hearing um, another kind of counter because the, of the kind of discrepancy in this war, the, the, the fact that this came out of nowhere for no reason has, I think, left e many even uh, firmly convinced pacifists uh, at a bit of a loss. Uh, you know, sorry, I'm going on, but it's partly because this has been a very sort of uh, intense issue in my life for the last year. Um, you know, even even uh, the uh, Vietnamese Buddhist uh, monk Thich Nhat Hanh um, said that if someone is coming to kill you, you're obliged to stop them and to kill them because you are in fact doing them a favor. Uh, you're preventing them from uh, committing more more harm and hurting others. Um, so, so there is a dialogue and a conversation that has opened up and can be continued. Yes, and I I think you're you're, you're pointing very in a very good way that one thing is just to call an aggressor to stop the war and just completely other thing is to call victim to stop the war and i think the second is is immoral is immoral because it multiplies evil it doesn't doesn't stop evil and uh, i personally think that we ukrainians are pacifists because we want peace we we didn't we we didn't go to to russian land we didn't start this war of course we want peace but uh, what kind of peace will it be when when there will be a piece of a prison, a piece of uh, without freedom, a piece without without dignity? So these are the questions we we should be asking. 
Yes, Ascol, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for, for this conversation. We already uh, are talking for almost one hour, but it seems that we only started. So maybe it will be an opportunity to <laughs> talk again one, one, one day. Thank you, Ascol. Thank you so much, Volodymyr. Always a pleasure. Um, stay safe, be well, and uh, yeah, um, victory for Ukraine. This was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, our serious thinking in dark times. I was happy to meet with Askol Melnichuk, a prominent American writer with uh, Ukrainian origins. My name is Vladimir Yermonko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and chief editor of Ukraine World. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and read uh, Ukraine World website and Twitter and Facebook. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.